The Macro View, Episode 23. You're listening to the number one daily podcast focused on spreading the logic of liberty. I'm your host, Andrew Smith. In Episode 20 and 21, I debunked the common view of the Great Depression and walked listeners through both fiscal and monetary history, respectively, of the 20th century beginning in the in the late 20s and going through the Great Depression. Tonight, as promised, I discussed the nuances and some of the data behind the most recent financial crisis and whether or not it will be viewed as the second Great Depression and maybe even point back to uh, 20, episode 20 and 21 and remind everybody why it possibly should be considered the third Great Depression. So tonight we're going to go over just briefly the Austrian business cycle theory and then show some specific you know, data points and statistics that will at least say, you know, isn't, isn't this a coincidence that it didn't work out that way? It actually looks like it kind of more worked out this way. You know, so first, Austrian school economists claim that the business cycle is, is created by malinvestment as a result of state intervention, particularly in the 20th century, has been set in motion mostly by interest rate manipulation, which is exacerbated by financial panics that are caused by fractional reserve banking. So in order to get through this episode with everybody on board, if you're not familiar with fractional reserve banking, the next couple of minutes I want to walk everybody through what what banking is and why fractional reserve banking causes financial panics. So, And then I'm going to walk everybody through a couple of examples of you know, situations that were going on and what happened in the most recent financial crisis. And we're going to walk through sort of the logic behind the Austrian business cycle and follow it up with some key statistics that really, whether they're coincidence or not, you know, you kind of sort of match them up and say, hey, you know, this, uh, you know, this kind of makes a lot of sense. Now, having said that, you know, I'll be the first to say, you know, in following the Austrian school of thought, that is, you know, data aggregates are, you can always find a data aggregate to back your point up, but that's sort of the, cl- the, the point of this. You know, the sort of the point of this is to explain, like, look, this is what these, these guys do. So here's a bunch that support this claim as well. So banks offer two key services to start. One of them is, is money warehousing, and the other one is financial intermediation. And money warehousing consists of sort of checking and short-term savings accounts of which you can, you know, if you're the depositor, go and withdraw your m- money at any moment. And these are called demand deposits. So that's your money. You then go and, and you know, you get a claim to it whenever you, whenever you want. You can write checks against it or you can use electronic, uh, electronic payments to give that claim to your, mon- uh, to your money to other merchants. And then you have financial intermediation, which comes in a number of forms of banking products. But for the sake of keeping this a fairly short explanation, you have certificates of deposit in contrast to checking. And these are known as time deposits. And in such, you're lending money to the bank. It's, it's no longer your money until the asset matures and you receive an interest rate and that interest rate accrues and is paid out at maturity. So the bank turns around and then lends that money out. See, in a non-fractional reserve system, demand deposits are warehoused in a vault and on full reserve and only time deposits and other explicit investment products are lent out or invested you know, when you deposit them with a the bank. So in a fractional reserve system, in a, in a fractional reserve system, it's all lent out. 
Banks keep a percentage of the demand deposits on reserve and they lend the rest out. So this means that there are two or more people with claims to the same money. Now, banking in modern terms, it gets a lot more complicated and I should and, and will dedicate a couple of episodes, a series of a couple of episodes to discuss modern banking system and its various complexities and different branches and what they do and, and sort of how they work. But often banks you know, are lending this money out, especially the largest and most complex banks for short, very short periods of time. At times, though, there can be multiple claims to the same money. On tonight's show page, which can be found at macroviewnews.com slash podcast, I've put up a slideshow for everybody. And the first slide is an example of just a very simplified fractional reserve demand deposit and the consequences as well as a time deposit. And it shows why the time deposit doesn't suffer the same issue and why it's inherently less, less dangerous for banks to warehouse demand deposits and then lend out time deposits and other investment products. For the sake of listeners potentially confronting this for the first time, or those that need a quick refresher, I'll, I'll walk you through both of these examples. In the fractional reserve bank, a depositor deposits 100 bucks in a checking account. They receive a debit card, and they believe that they have $100 they can spend at any time. The bank keeps $10, and for the sake of you know for the for the sake of this example, which is 10% reserve. And then lends $90 out in a line of credit of sorts or a term loan. It doesn't really matter. For this example, I'm going to use line of credit. Now there's $190 worth of claims to $100. If both people with claims to this $100 max out their claim, the bank will have a negative $90 liability. And on a large scale, one can kind of picture how this gets messy. So in the example of the time deposit, while it is true... You know, lending itself is risky and the bank could make bad loans and lose your money, you know, absent of an FDIC insurance and in Austria, you know, sort of an Austro-Libertarian freetopia, so to speak, you know, you wouldn't have this FDIC insurance and you could theoretically lose your money from a time deposit. So, you know, in, in the example, you see a demand deposit on the left-hand side and a corresponding loan made out. And as you can see, a depositor makes a $100 deposit. They receive a debit card or checks. They can write against it and you know they can write it against the, that account at any time. Now, a portion of the money is put up on a reserve, cash reserve by the bank. In this example, again, I use 10%, so 10 bucks. And then the rest of the money is lent out. So $90 is lent out, as we mentioned earlier. And this is done you know, in this example via a line of credit, let's say. So the bank effectively creates $190 worth of claims or $90. They create 90 new dollars out of essentially thin air on a hundred dollars. So in the second example, the time deposit, the depositor lends money to the bank for a period of three years and in return expects to receive a 4% per year rate of interest. The bank lends the money out for three years at 8% interest and at time deposit, there's no multiple claim on money because the depositor knows they're foregoing their claim to the present money for future money. So in the simple case like slide one with a perfect match of asset maturity, when the loan matures, the CD matures, right? The liability maturity when the CD matures, you know, basically the risk boils down to the risk of default on the loan. And you know, as we will see later, banks can kind of manage the risk of default through diversification. So now we have a quick brief understanding of, of sort of how fractional reserve banking can get messy.
and you know something that in a future episode we will go on more in, into more depth on but tonight we really you know kind of got to keep it brief but now we can get into some of the data that I want to point point out to tonight you know point point everybody uh, to tonight and um, you know you're going to kind of see why this matters and and you know in particular you know because without the context of the fractional reserve banking it may be difficult to understand some of the nuances that will be discussed tonight and with that being said you know I want to remind everybody throughout this you may see some numbers you'd be like well it doesn't see why would that have the, you've got to remember it's it's because of it's because of the fractional reserve banking I'll try to touch a little bit later on in the episode, I'll try to touch a little bit more on some of how that all comes together. But uh, I really do want to dive right into it, and we're going to dive right into it. But first, quick commercial break. Tired of losing debates to your left-leaning friends? Tired of being stumped by the state agenda? Feel you got gypped in school? Head over to macroviewnews.com and click on the link in the top right corner titled Liberty Classroom. You'll find a treasure trove of real history and economics. With well over 100 hours of lectures from the world's most preeminent libertarian leaders, you'll get the equivalent of a PhD in libertarian thought. Courses include Austrian economics step-by-step, -step, the history of political thought, the history of economic thought, four different U.S. history courses covering it all, a Full History of Western Civilization, John Maynard Keynes, His System and Its Fallacies, and much, much more. So head on over to macroviewnews.com and click on the link in the top right corner titled Liberty Classroom. So I mentioned I have a slideshow on the show page, which is macroviewnews.com slash podcast. And that shows the first chart. You know, I went over the example that's in the first chart. And on the second slide, uh, the second chart, it shows a line chart with three data series and, and three trend lines, one trend line following you know, each data series. So the orange line and the yellow line are measured against the left axis. And you know, they measure the savings rate and the percentage of disposable income. Um, so that's the savings rate as a percentage of the disposable income. And they also and GDP respectively. So the orange is savings rate, yellow is GDP, and both have been on sort of an overall downtrend. If you take a look at it, uh, and then you have a blue line measured against the right axis, which is the uh, private per capita debt as a percentage of per capita personal income. And what you'll see is that over the 23-year period from 1978 to 2001, per capita debt as a percentage of per capita income grew by a little bit more than 44%. It's not 44 percentage points, but 44%. Then, over the next seven years, did the same thing. It's actually, I believe, almost closer to about six years if you actually break it down to, uh, uh, to quarterly numbers. So... And it just comp compounded upon itself, reaching a point where the per capita private debt was more than 100% of per capita personal income and averaged over 100% for the five-year period 
from the beginning of 2006 to the end of 2010 or the start of 2011. And we'll be re-emphasizing this in just a bit. So that number reached the peak just two years after the savings rate reached an all-time historic low. Now, with numbers like the savings rate, it can also be beneficial to think about you know, the struggle that takes place when you're saving money and how savings sort of build upon themselves. And to think about the fact that you know, it takes a good two, three, four years, maybe five years of savings to get on the right path once you've you know, sort of gotten ahead in life. And in um, a single line on slide three, sort of for that basic common, commonsensical reason, I just look at the five-year moving average of the savings rate. And what you'll see is in the third slide, um, you know, you'll see that this five-year moving average savings rate bottomed in 08. Now, on the official savings rate, it bottomed in 05, which you'll want to remember because we're going to come back later in the episode and talk a little bit more about that. But you see a bottom in 08 at 3.6%. So the five-year average for the previous five years, savings rate as a percentage of uh, personal disposable income was 3.6%. It's 72% lower than it was at the 1976 high. Now, in the next slide, in the next slide, slide four, you'll see the re-emphasis of the per capita private debt to per capita income ratio. And it's from 1960 to the present. So as you'll notice, household debt was skyrocketing when the savings rate was continuously falling year after year after year. It does this just kind of, you know, and then you get the peak in, in 05 you know, or the bottom in 05 of the savings rate, but the five-year average bottom was in 08 and you have the household debt numbers reaching their peaks and their five-year average high in 08. It, doesn't that just kind of make sense? The entire country was borrowing and borrowing and borrowing to spend while not putting anything away to save. You know, at the same time, Everybody was home equity rich or 401k rich, but you know, what was there really? You know, there's a lot of debt. There are a lot of claims to real resources. And at the same time, there weren't that many new real resources coming onto the market. They're possibly being misallocated. So if you go to slide two, if you go back to slide two, you know, I have that linear trend line. And as you see, as you can see, you know, GDP is generally volatile, more so than the, you know, the trendy, you know, savings rate that you see. But the trend has been slightly downward. You know, as has the savings rate. Savings rate has been clearly downward. Now, later in this episode, this will be very important to sort of tie the whole picture together. If you look at slide number five, I have the Fed funds rate, which is the central bank set rate. And it's the annualized rate for overnight loans and other Fed credit instruments. And it's also sometimes referred to as the effective Fed rate. So maybe you've heard people on the news talking about either one of those. So you may remember in, in episode 21 and 22, you know, I discussed that in 71, Nixon removed the United States from the gold standard and inflation sort of caught up with us over the next couple of decades. 
And you'll see on this chart that the Fed fund rate skyrocketed, this is during the Volcker years, to more than 16%. Inflation sort of tampered down. The savings rate sort of stabilized after dropping a little bit to around 10%. Um, and for, for a while, it sort of stayed there. And then, you know, the economy started to boom, and that was sort of as inflation subsided. So if you focus on slides three, four, and five combined, you clearly see that as interest rates came down, and at certain points in the 90s, after the tech bubble went down to generational lows, this happened right, you know, right as the savings rate was also declining, which that's sort of backwards, right? If you think about it, if you have more savings, you know, if you think about the way that a bank would price interest, if you have less people saving, shouldn't interest rates be going upwards, right? Um, so you want it because you're trying, banks would be trying to encourage that savings. You just think about some of these subtleties and, and nuances of this. It just doesn't, their picture doesn't all add up. The mainstream economist picture doesn't add up. You'll see the Fed fund skyrocket comes down you know, at normal levels of, of the Fed funds rate. Disposable income is kind of 10% for a while, or savings is 10% for a while as, as a percentage of disposable income. Economy starts going well, and you start to see a tanking in, in um, both interest rates hitting generational lows at certain points in the 90s and generational lows at certain points in the early 2000s. And all of a sudden, you have very, very little savings. So it's not, that's not necessarily solely attrib attributed to the interest rates um, you know, set by the Fed, but it definitely partially is. And tomorrow night for episode 24, I've already got planned, I'm going to be doing, uh, I'm going to be discussing the tax history. So there's a lot there as well that you got to kind of think about. And it is something that we have, we really haven't gotten too deep into yet on this show, you know, taxes. And I really do want to talk a little bit about the history of tax rates. I'm not going to go into the theory of taxes, you know, or, or why anarcho-capitalists believe that they're immoral, but I'm going to talk about the, the actual history of taxes in the United States. It's going to be interesting. I may, I'm thinking about maybe making a double, a two-part episode as well. Uh, but it kind of goes along with this because I want to discuss you know, the dramatic changes in, in taxes that have occurred recently. And you also have some people that blame the more recent crisis on, on things like the Reagan tax cuts, which, you know, we talked a little bit on, on, the um on our last episode on that wasn't the debate on episode 21 and it just it doesn't really add up it doesn't make sense so i do want to go into a little bit more depth on that i'm going to do that tomorrow but the savings rate did decline and private debt to personal income ratios remember low low if you set a a price you know if, if you have a floor which you have in this case what you're doing is you're setting sort of a floor for um You'd be setting a floor for, for, for lending, right? For lending out. So you can only lend out at a certain interest rate and you're, you're setting a ceiling for, for borrowing, you know? So the highest, you know, they can only, you're only getting charged a certain price. So you're going to necessarily end up with, and I guess you, you end up having both a, a ceiling and a floor. It just depends on who's the consumer. And so at one point, a bank is a, a borrower and then they're also a lender. So it gets a little bit confusing here. But 
if if you 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 end up with shortages and surpluses that's what happens you know ceilings price ceilings create shortages price floors create surpluses so when prices can't go below a certain point you end up with a surplus of something if prices can't go above a certain point you end up with shortages and if interest rates are too low what you end up with is a shortage of savings so a shortage of lenders but you end up with a surplus of borrowers and then you also have to think about the fact that you have all these government guarantee programs to create lending and i mean i'm not going to do it tonight we're going to talk a little bit later on uh, about an episode that I'm going to do later about securitization markets and all that, get really into the nuances of some of these topics. So, because I want the the people in the mainstream schools of thought will just take a piece of data, you know, take a chart and see C told you. Well, I could take a chart too and say C told you. I mean, I could just say, you know, if I want to do that, I could say C savings declines in the savings rate have hampered GDP, Hayek was right. I mean, that, that, the, the second slide shows that. So I just want to show why you've got to be careful about some of this stuff. So the savings rates declined, private debt as a percentage of personal incomes skyrocketed from 2000 to 2007 in the face of massive interest rate slashes under Greenspan to rescue the economy, quote unquote, from the tech bubble. You had the largest year-over-year increases in the household debt to or private debt to personal income ratios. And that, that number, when I say private debt, it also includes uh, not-for-profits because they, there's a number of reasons why they serve as a, both a, a, char- a lot of times charitable organizations to the lowest income uh, you know, folks out there. And they also serve as a place for for wealthy people to put money that goes and and is funneled to some of these basic services but also they can take on debt and um so it's it's important to think about think about it from that perspective as well so these are just again aggregate data numbers but these these private debt and this is these are fed numbers you know this from the federal reserve from the belly of the beast so it's from the people that are talking about how these things are good, you know, in the in the face of massive interest rate slashes, you had huge declines in the savings rate, bigger than you've ever had before, and it got down to a low, and you then also had simultaneously massive increases in private debt to personal income ratios. You know, the other reason why it's important to include not-for-profits is because they rely on on people having money left over in order to to donate to charities. So if you think about that as well, it's important to include all of that. But, you know, savings rates declined, debt skyrocketed, and as the debt ratios rose dramatically, Greenspan and the Fed began lifting interest rates. So now if you understand a little bit about the, uh, the inner workings of a bank, the next slide would have, you know, would have been extremely predictable. So as you see on slide six, if you go to it, if you're on the page, you'll see delinquency rates skyrocketed on mortgages. Okay. 
Now, that's not specifically the most important aspect of the chart in pointing to saying, you know, the Keynesian, the modern mainstream, you know, economic theorists get it wrong. What's significantly important to understand you know, and understand the lies that have been preached is how the Fed, the bailouts, the Obama stimulus, quote unquote, save the economy to a lot of these people. Look at what happened from in 2009, 2010. 2011, 2012, and where delinquency rates were some five years later after the crisis for mortgages. Now, it's true these particular data series don't go far enough back to get a full picture of the history and, and like compare it to the, you know, the Great Depression or whatever, but in re you can see in recent history, other recessions, delinquency rates rise a little bit, and then a year or two, they're back where they were. In 2013, five years after the crash, delinquency rates for mortgages were still at, prior to 08, historic highs. And worst of all, the highs were hit after the measures were taken. So remember, I put these, uh, I've got the markers where 08 is. Look at 08, all these measures started rolling out and these highs continued to happen. You know, historic highs in mortgage delinquency rates. Now, think about this one. HARP, the Home Affordable Refinance Program, whatever it was called, uh, which stepped in in you know, 09, 2010. You had a lot of other regulations come out. It, it was particularly for homes that were underwater and threatened by foreclosure. Well, people with a mortgage, basically, a lot of them just stopped paying it, especially if they're struggling, because that sped the process up for getting refinanced. So that's one of the reasons why that number stays really high, which is not by any means a good way to, to try to, you don't just encourage people to stop paying debts. That's, that can't be good for the economy unless you're going to have mass scale bankruptcies and you're actually going to let those bad debts go away. And that's not what happened. And as you'll see a little bit later tonight, that's absolutely not what happened. So as you see, though, business loans, which had no such program, their delinquency rate peaked out a little slightly higher than they had in the 01 you know, tech bubble crash after years, and they began to decline, and by 2012 were lower than they had been in 2005 when all seemed dandy. So you see something similar with consumer debt, except the peak took a little longer to reach. So consumer debt delinquencies peaked in 2010, but began their decline, and by 2012, we're back to sort of historical normal levels. High, maybe a little high for historical norms, but generally normal. So loan losses as a percentage of total, total loans, as one could imagine, followed sort of a similar pattern, but it was hit a little bit longer, both due to the mortgage component and then the later peak in consumer debt delinquencies. So if the economy was saved by all these measures, then why was it in 2010 when the markets had turned around that all things seemed to be headed in the right direction, that consumer debt delinquency was peaking to all-time highs and mortgage debt delinquency was still at an all-time high? If the government spending and the consumer consumption drove the economy, then why is it that it seems that you know, savings rates seem to better correspond with an immediate rebound in the markets and... 
in general, generally in the economy, and only later taper off a little bit, but never got back to historical lows. And at, at the same time, you know, economies just keep on petering along. So savings rate are just you know like dipped all the way to all time low, came back up to still b- below anywhere near historical norms, and the economy is barely growing. So a little bit for the rest of the show tonight, we've got a little bit more to discuss. You know, we're going to discuss, finish discussing a, a, a few last points about the most recent economic crisis and some interesting data tidbits that just sort of suggest that the Austrian school was at least as much as anybody else claiming to be right, was correct and possibly is correct. And we're going to be putting a lot of burden of proof on the mainstream schools of thought. But first, I want to share a resource that both I find valuable and that I feel as though, especially people who are just getting you know, started and getting versed in uh, the Austrian school of uh, economics and want to understand a little bit more and want to kind of see, or you know, those that just want to kind of see, hey, what are these uh, crazy Austrian people uh, thinking? I want to share this quick message with you and then we'll be right back and we'll finish up. Imagine learning more about economics in one short day than most people do in a lifetime. Imagine understanding how to demolish the common economic myths that many professional economists still believe after years of education. Imagine finally having a framework to confidently analyze the economic issues of our time rather than feeling overwhelmed by statist arguments. We'll stop imagining and start doing. Sign up and take the Mises Boot Camp online. In just three hours of lectures, a couple of slideshows, and a bit of reading, you'll be ready to take on the statist world of fallacies with no sweat. The best part is it's all free. For your convenience, you can find a link directly to the registration page in tonight's show notes at macroviewnews.com slash podcast. All right, so a couple of final points. I want everyone to see what what has you know happened recently re- with regards to banks holding government debt after both the removal of the gold standard and then after the most recent crisis. So at the end of 1970, the total value of government securities, and this includes agency guaranteed securities, was 8% lower in nominal terms. That means before adjusting for inflation. Now, to be fair, you know, so is the, so is the next number, but 8% lower in nominal terms than it was in 1947. But from the beginning of 1971 till 2001, it grew by 8.66% per year. That's over 11x in total. From 01 to 08, the growth of, of government security holdings on um, you know, government securities on bank balance sheets, the value of it slowed to about 6% a year. But then from 08 to 2015, it went back up to over 9% a year. So another interesting chart to take a look at is the per capita value of business loans at all commercial banks. That's on slide 11, Slide 11, which you can find tonight on tonight's show page at macroviewnews.com slash podcast. And if you remember in 08, uh, TARP, which was originally deemed the Toxic Asset Repurchase Program, and later after being approved, renamed 
the troubled asset relief program by the time it reached the, the, the Treasury Department, the entire basis of passing the TARP bill was that businesses, if they don't pass this bill, will be unable to get loans to make their payroll. So what you see here is actually, yes, business loan values increased in 09. You know, so through 08, they had gone up. And then in 09, they went up, but then they collapsed in 2010. And they didn't re- reach their previous levels again until just last year. So it just seems odd that a year after TARP was passed to continue to make business loans, you know, the loan market just collapsed. You know, maybe it was quote unquote saved for the year 2009, but you can't really you can't say that it worked. So I also want to point out here, and, and remember also going going back earlier. I pointed out the business loan delinquency rates weren't really that high. So if you think about what's actually going on here, you see those agency securities skyrocket. What you had is just a doubling down of the housing bubble. I mean, that's that, essentially what happened was you just had more money. Now, it's true you have a lot more foreign investment going into U.S. housing as well, which, again, there's a lot of nuances. But you basically just had a doubling down. You didn't have... You know, business loans fell off the, the, you know, fell off right in, you know, after 2009. If you look at it on a per capita basis, they peaked in 09 and then fell off. So you can't say that, that, that it worked. You know, the business rate was, delinquency rate was declining. So there's no reason for that. You know, they should have been, if anything, a prudent entrepreneur would have been saying, hey, look, business delinquencies are lower right now. You know, let's move maybe a little bit more of our real estate allocation towards, I don't know, towards businesses. You know, the, the reason that this is really interesting, though, is combined with slides 12, 13, and 14, which I'll discuss in a second. And if you go back to the second slide, you can see that the business failure rate or survivorship rate, rather, is pretty much generally stable. You know, you, you end up having about... Three out of every 10 businesses, three and a half out of every 10 businesses still survive after 10 years. And after three years, you have about 65% of businesses that are are still surviving. So, but incidentally, business formation, which you'll see a little bit later tonight on, on the final slide, began to slow at the exact same time that savings rates were at an all time low or maybe you know, so, you know, instead of saying incidentally, maybe we could just say that it kind of makes sense and really fits well within the Austrian theory of the business cycle. Without real savings, lending was based on credit expansion and it does nothing more than drive asset prices up to unsustainable levels. The, the loans are used for longer term projects that take a lot longer to pay off. And when you misallocate them, when you misallocate resources to these longer-term projects, prices may have changed already. And if you have a bunch of entrepreneurs like you did in housing allocating to things that were coming down the line much further along, you know, planning large-scale multi-year housing projects. And I don't say housing projects in the sense of like housing projects, like government projects, you know, Section 8 projects. I mean like like McMansion projects, where you know, huge planned developments. You have a bunch of them going on at the same time, getting planned at the same time based on current prices, and then prices begin to fall 
So, you know, you, what you don't do is you don't just reprop that up and say, okay, well, even though consumers don't really prefer to have a bunch of houses right now as they're showing because houses are continuing to decline and they can't really afford them at the current level and all of the signs that say, hey, maybe we just should let the market find equilibrium, you know, instead of doing that, you're just re-propping up prices so that everybody just kind of goes about their business acting like nothing's changed. And that's just insane to me. I mean, if you think about it and you understand that these are real resources, real scarce resources that are being misallocated. And like I said, in the most recent case, it was a massive overallocation of human labor and commodity resources put into housing because entrepreneurs judge based on prices. And entrepreneurs naive to the nature of state incentives you know, that are doled out to the, the homeowners, they pile capital into delivering an ever-growing supply at phenomenally high prices. You know, instead of letting the market run its course, letting max, mass bankruptcy result in the auctioning off of these misallocated real resources to prudent entrepreneurs at lower prices and eventually or lower values and eventually reaching market values, if it was done at market interest rates, then the economy would have simply recovered and moved on its path. To understand what I mean by, by real resources, you know, th- just think about it like this. It would be like if a small town that's been eating a lot of lamb you know, for a long time, but then they start eating fish. And eventually it got to a point where people actually wanted more fish than they wanted lamb. But government kept subsidizing the production of lamb to, and then drove the price of fish, fish up with you know, a tariff on imports that, you know, from where they were getting their fish from. So it doesn't change the fact that people still want fish. It just encourages a misallocation of resources to produce more lamb and to make it more attractive to buy lamb as opposed to fish. Now, no one would want to do that with food, you know, at that kind of local level, but we do that with food, even at a national level. And it's something that we've done with housing and we did with housing earlier in, in this millennium and we're doing it again now. And we did it, you know, late, late part of last millennium. So, you know, I don't have a ton of time left, but really quickly, you know, you see there in the last chart what I was talking about with the new business formation numbers. If you're, if you go to the, the show page and you see the slideshow, it, it, namely in 08, I've marked a lot of these numbers, but if, if you see an 08, it's starting to reach negative, but it started to go down in 2005 and it, it bottomed out in like 2010. Or I guess picked it back up in 2010, bottomed down in 2009, picked back up in 2010, started to go down in 05 when savings rates were at all-time lows. It, it started going negative when people had really high debt-to-personal income ratios. And as the savings rate started to pick up a little bit, so did new business formation. Now, the reason for this is yeah, there's, I wanted to give a little bit of guidance to what I'm talking about. And I, I did put on in some of the the slides, if, if you think about some of the stuff I'm talking about, some of the markers make a lot more sense. But the reason I wanted to show this is that it just, it just, does it just so happen that as savings rates reach all-time lows and debt levels reach all-time highs, they have just this massive caving in the formation of new businesses, 
which even Keynesians and, and other mainstream economic theorists believe small businesses are the main job creator and they're big believers in job creation. That that's the primary goal. They, they believe that that's the primary goal of an economy. Now, I may differ with them, but that's it, it from their perspective. From their perspective. Now, also remember, it bottomed out in 2009, and you also saw that you also had, had business loans peak in 2009 and then collapse in 2010, 2011. We're still at all-time lows and really didn't recover for a number of years later. So this whole idea that, that everything the government was doing was to be able to make sure there are small business loans and people would find new jobs and that the economy would continue. There wouldn't really be as big of a hiccup. But yet, you know, years later, eight years later, it's tough to really say that we're out of the what people call Great Recession and what I, I believe is, is actually the third Great Depression. So tomorrow night, there will also be an accompanying slideshow. And if you missed it earlier... You know, I've said it a number of times. You can find it on macroviewnews.com slash podcast. If you're not listening to this you know, from the show page, I do suggest you go check it out because it'll just make a lot more sense. If you're not actually looking at the slides and you're just kind of listening to me talk, it might not make as much sense. It might not all come together, especially if you're a visual person. So do check that out. But tomorrow night when I walk through the tax history, I'm also going to touch on some of the similarities to the Great Depression in terms of things like regime uncertainty and the likely effect that it has had on, on markets and investment and the potential for a, potentially another down cycle in the future. And I'm also going to discuss some ways that maybe some of the pain may be eased in terms of some of the promises of the incoming administration. Although I will say I'm not going to hold my breath on their promises, but just kind of talk a little bit about what the, you know, what the incoming administration has said in regards to, to some things in the market. And what will be good and what will be bad. And, and, you know, there, there is a lot of cash on the sidelines and a lot of American cash overseas. So there could be some easing of pain with private money that could occur. Uh, I'm not going to go into details on that right now, but I, I will talk a little bit more about that on, on tomorrow night's episode. Um, so I'm, I'm going to, I also mentioned I'm going to do a full episode on fractional reserve banking, um, which I did mention a little bit about the, tonight briefly. But I'm probably going to schedule it for the you know one of the next five episodes to go into a little bit greater depth. So so you know be on the lookout for that. It didn't come around again. I haven't tied it back yet. Uh, but I I do want to tie it back in before we we let everybody go because I did mention it make a little bit of a, a stink about it earlier on. So so essentially what happened is that because of central bank manipulation of interest rates combined with government incentives to invest in certain things, malinvestment was made. Much investment comes out of the banking sector and much of it is done through the extension of credit that's tied to a pool which partially includes demand deposits, a pool of deposits or or bank bank liabilities. Banks have liabilities or or funds that they borrow and then they go and lend it out. And also they have general assets, pools of assets that they have. This is what creates the this is what creates the liquidity crisis. The fractional reserve banking is what creates the liquidity crisis. So many of you may demand may remember hearing back in 0708 phrases such as liquidity crisis or credit crunch or you know liquidity crunch 
they're all used and sort of interchangeably. But what they're saying is that the banks have extended loans and lines of credit that were made with funds that were in demand deposit accounts. So if they're going to fire sell assets to cover deposits, markets, markets basically would crash because they're not liquid enough to absorb all of those assets being being you know flooding the market at the same time and searching for buyers eventually at market price the market price would get bid down 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 if there's no buyers so basically what they're trying to say is that many of these financial institutions would have to mark their assets down to levels that would force them into bankruptcy and you'd have a run on the banks and the entire financial sector could collapse so i did an episode not too long ago that I'll link to on tonight's show page discussing financial entanglement and how this liquidity crunch, which now understanding a little bit of fractional reserve system, um, how you can understand kind of how this happens and why central bankers and politicians and bankers and mainstream economists were talking a lot about liquidity and using the term liquidity and saying that it's really just a liquidity crisis. But if you don't know what that means, Basically, liquidity crisis is the ability to sell at market value without having to discount the value and to do so in a timely fashion. So in the terms in terms of making good on demand deposits, a timely fashion is like a day or two. And often they'd have to reach out to the Fed or to other banks. And then when they don't have those credit lines to draw on, when a bank is maxed out on their leverage, they have to sell assets. If one or two big banks begin dumping assets, you're going to see prices begin to fall. And then this sets off the trigger. So this wouldn't happen, though, if the bank had 30 days or a year to make good with its time deposit creditors. And if the fees and penalties, just because they're a little bit illiquid right now, and they might need another year and their asset matching wasn't very great. You know, if that were the case, they could maybe pay penalties and, uh, you know, figure out a way to work. But they're going to figure out a way to take a lot less losses than the losses that result from fire selling. So, and this only happens when the bank, the fire selling only really would happen, will happen if the bank has to make good immediately for depositors, which is where the fractional reserve of demand deposits comes into play. It also kind of just goes to show that the FDIC is really a failed entity. I'm going to discuss that later in greater detail on the fractional reserve banking episode. But it really is a failed entity. It didn't do what it was supposed to do, which was prevent runs on bank banks and de- demand deposits being demanded all at the same time and causing this. The FDIC was supposed to be a be-all solution for, for the liquidity issues with fractional reserve banking. The, the idea was if people know they're going to be able to get their money back even if the bank goes under – it shouldn't be that big of a deal, and you'll, you'll, you won't have these runs on banks. It, it didn't work that way. So it's a failed entity. Now, if you want to sell a house in a day, you basically have to sell it for next to nothing, or at least an extremely steep discount. So depending on the size of the market and the number of players in the market and the, the cost of assets in the market, and liquidity can either be significant or it can be very thin. Or, or there can be very little liquidity. Now, I, I'll, I definitely have to do an episode on securitization markets and derivative markets as well. But understand that without the fractional reserve banking and the lending out of demand deposits, 
these liquidity crisis, and the reason I say securitization, because a lot of the mainstream economists, especially Keynesians, like to say that that was the cause of the financial crisis. And they like to point to some really weird and abstract data to, to, to say so. So I want to talk a little bit more about that in a separate episode. But understand, without the fractional reserve banking, you wouldn't have this liquidity crisis. A bank would be able to liquidate orderly and depositors would get demand depositors would get paid back. Time depositors absent an FDIC may have to take some haircuts, but it wouldn't set off a systemic domino effect. The reason the fractional reserve system does is because the depositor has to be made whole by the bank on demand. And sometimes the bank can't because they're tied up in loans that just aren't as liquid as cold, hard cash. Well, that's all for it tonight, folks. Um, hope you, I uh, hope you really enjoyed tonight's episode. Don't forget to tune in t- tomorrow. This is a two-part series on the recent recent history of government interventions into the economy and their effects, and namely the 08 crisis is what we're really centering around, and some of the indicators that blow up the mainstream theories and point to a strong case to be made for the Austrian theory of the business cycle. Again, if you're not listening to tonight's episode from the show page. I really do suggest that you do check it out so that you can see the slideshow and there will be sources and my method for calculation if, if there were any um, adjustments made to the numbers and whatnot. So just be um, you know, be aware that if you're just listening to this, you're hearing me talk about slides and chart and these numbers and, and I'm just kind of roughly talking about this stuff. You're not seeing the charts that I'm talking about. So you should go there and listen to the episode with the charts. Uh, it'll make a lot more sense. Also, subscribe to uh, to macroviewnews.com so that you can get new episodes delivered to your inbox right when they're released, um, or at least you'll get a link to them. And very important, don't forget to, to uh, follow us on social media at Twitter. It's, it's uh, Twitter. Our handle is at the macroview, and Facebook, it's facebook.com slash the macroview. And most importantly of all, Do not forget to share us with your friends and family and help me to spread the logic of liberty. Hope everybody enjoys the rest of their evening. Take care, everybody. You have been listening to The Macro View. Tune in tomorrow night and every weeknight at 9.30 p.m. Pacific time to help spread the logic of liberty.